1: It's Friday here at Radical Personal Finance. On Fridays, we do Q&A. Let's get started. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets and I'm your host. Today it's Friday, so we do live Friday Q&A, although this promises to be interesting, doing some things I've never done before. So time to learn and grow, right? That's the whole point. things. Uh, last couple of weeks, I've been getting uh, the results back from your uh, surveys. And uh, one of the, some of the results to me were pretty astonishing. But a couple of the things were very nice and very gratifying. You know, I learned a lot about who you are as a listening audience. I learned um, some of the demographics, which have been super, super helpful. But um, And some of it has been a little bit surprising. Now, a couple of the things that I learned that I don't know if it was surprising or not, but um, one of the things that I learned was just simply that the majority of you who are listening are – Right in that twenty-five to fifty-four age bracket, most of you make a lot of money, and most of you have college educations. And the challenge of that scenario of y'all making a lot of money and having uh, college educations means that I'm not achieving one of the goals that I have set for myself, which is I've been trying to reach people who are just getting started. I've been trying to reach people who are, um, you know, who are younger, who are poor, uh, etc. Now I know I'm not going to talk a, a long long about that, but as I've been considering that, I realized well. Uh, I don't know that younger people are listening to long format podcasts, but they are watching video. So I'm going to determine to use uh, learn how to do video. <laughs> I've put it off for a long time, just simply choosing to focus on uh, audio primarily, and uh, uh, and uh, but. I've decided, okay, it's time to do what I can. So, of course, I'm a minimalist, so I try to do as much as I can with minimum equipment uh, and make it work. So I have been putting together a video setup, and at the moment, I am live streaming. Finally, after uh, threatening it some months ago, I'm live streaming the recording of the show here. I'm live streaming it in the Radical Personal Finance Facebook group. So if you'd like to see this, I intend to do this more often. Sometimes I think I'll do it on the page. So if you haven't done it, come on by and like the Radical Personal Finance Facebook page. And uh, sometimes I think think that I will do it in the Facebook group. So come on by and join. If you'd like to do the ch- uh, chat with us, come on by and join the Radical Personal Finance Facebook group. For those of you who are watching online, thank you. Feel free to interact in the comments and uh, contribute your uh, your commentary. But uh, all of that said, that it obviously makes me very nervous. I get very nervous being on video. And when you got to produce a show and – hopefully make sense, give proper financial, um, financial answers <laughs> on technical complex topics, do it in an interesting and concise way <laughs> while recording video and audio, I'm feeling the pressure at the moment. So you'll have to bear with me if, uh, if we make mistakes. So let's see. Let's go first to, I see Greg uh, is here on my screen. Greg from PA. Greg, go ahead and introduce yourself and let me know what you'd like to talk about today, please.
2: Hi, uh, Joshua. Can you hear me?
1: I can hear you well. Yes, sir. Go ahead.
2: <clears throat> That's funny because I'm looking at your face on the on the computer and your voice here. It's funny. <laughs> uh, you, no, I just I, I saw you were doing the live feed, so I jumped right in. I, I was not prepared; wasn't even thinking about it. So I'm just excited to be here. Do you have a I'm question like, or a topic you know.
1: of conversation?
2: Um, yeah, I can come up with a question. I've got 10 million questions. Um, what? Um. You know what I've been thinking about lately? Okay, I have three cars. And I keep wondering why do I have three cars. And one's a good family mover. It's a Toyota 4Runner. One is uh, an electric car that I love. And the other is an Acura that's about 10 years old and or a little over 10 years old. And, and it gets great glass mileage. And I keep thinking, boy, each of these cars fits a, a different need in my life. But I think <laughs> I could save some money if I got rid of one of them. But then I'm like do I get rid of the, the 12-year-old Acura or, um, I, I don't know. It's something I keep thinking about. Would I save money if I didn't have these three cars, even though I save a lot of money with the Nissan Leaf.
1: So you had two and then you bought the Leaf in order to get the benefit of the, uh, cheaper running it with electricity. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's about right. Um, I, I, I found it down the street. I was just kind of interested in, it and I love, I love that car. And it, it's a lot of fun to drive and, Um, but it, you know, it's just limited on, on the miles. So, you know, we, we take off on the weekends and to get to the weekend location. Sometimes I I just can't, can't do it with that car. Um, and for my work as well, you know, I might travel to the next state over and I can't use that car. So I've been holding on to the Acura. Um, that really doesn't owe me any money because I bought it brand new and, and it's still kicking really well. Um, I don't
1: know. So it sounds like this is just kind of a a little minor tweak that you're trying to think about making uh, where if you, you know, is this a small little optimization in your, in your approach and you're trying to figure out how much it's costing you and if it's worth the hassle. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I think so. Because for instance, I just, I just did a job and I I drove, I don't know, let's say an hour and a half away and the Acura gets about 38 miles to the gallon when I'm on the highway. So it, it runs really, really well. Um, but I'm paying the insurance, I'm paying the registration. I just had it inspected just now. Um, you know, so there's, I guess, costs add up. And the one other thing I keep thinking about it, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, our state, Pennsylvania has insurance that is stacked. So I have it stacked on three cars. So I kind of think I get this benefit from that as well. You know what I'm talking about with that?
1: Where you mean your, poly, your, your coverage is increase or a reduction in rates? How do you mean?
2: So I guess in Pennsylvania you can um, you get your you can opt to have your insurance stacked on the multiple vehicles. So if you had say a hundred thousand dollars in in liability insurance, if you stack it and you have three cars, now I have three hundred thousand.
1: Right, got it. Got for it
2: for incidents. So I think that's got a great benefit to it as well.
1: <laughs> well, um, I mean, obviously, this sounds like just more of a fun question than something you're uh, then. Than something that you're really uh, struggling with, uh, it's not obviously a, a huge uh, financial issue uh, for you. I would just calculate the cost. None of it doesn't sound like any of these cars are are worth a lot of money if you sold them, right? Is that accurate?
2: I would say you're correct on there. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: So if if cars are cheap and they're not worth a lot of money if you sold them, then. Um, then you're in a situation where it doesn't cost you that much to keep them around in terms of depreciation. So your basic calculation is the gasoline that you put through them, but in the calculation of whether to keep them or not, that's not relevant because you're going to be driving one of them. So we're not talking about driving less. And it comes down to repair expenses and cost of insurance. If the cost of insurance is small, uh, which – Probably sounds like it probably is. Uh, so cost of insurance is small, and then also the brands that you have a Toyota 4Runner and an Acura, which is uh, uh, an Acura is a Honda. These are reliable, consistent brands that aren't going to cost all that much money to keep around. Um, my mind, they're not they're not costing you a ton. Uh, the electric car is obviously for fun and to save a little bit of money on on gasoline. Uh, if you don't need the money and you like having the extra car, keep it around until you get in the situation where you are frustrated with. Uh, where you frustrated with having to make the repair bills? Okay. <laughs> That's what I would do. Uh, you know, I, I own at the moment. I own four cars. I own two many vans. I own a camper van, and I have this little Toyota Corolla that I bought for five hundred bucks back in the day. And uh, it's just nice to have an extra car, and I like it because it allows me to help people who are in need in a, in an easier way. Than other people, it's a little hard to say. Hey, somebody needs a car, and I'm going to give them my primary car. But for me, one of the big reasons I have the Corolla uh, is I can keep that car around. It costs me almost nothing. I've not had to repair anything. It's super basic, super simple. Uh, the insurance is is practically doesn't cost anything. And then I can have a car that's easy to lend out and allows me to help other people when they need to. So I don't know. If I were you, and absent some compelling reason to get rid of them, uh, and unless you're sure that you just don't want to own one of them, I would. Uh, I would keep them around myself <laughs> so all right let's go on here uh, and greg i can come back to you in a little bit if you, uh, if you got another question i've got a 703 phone number here on my screen who's that calling in go ahead please and introduce yourself that's that's, that's me that's frank
3: can okay frank
1: me? yeah i can hear you great go ahead and tell me what uh, what's going on let's see how i can serve you today
3: yeah um uh, i recently met with my insurance person and he um is proposing that I invest in something called a modified endowment contract. Okay. Uh, And I, and I don't even know what that is. So I was, uh, since it's, uh, from a company that he used to work for, I'm hoping you could
1: tell me something about it. Sure. So, uh, let's start with just what is a modified endowment contract. And let me explain that first and then, uh, we'll come back to your specifics and see if we can give you any, any useful advice on it. A modified endowment contract is simply a term that means uh, it's it's a it's a technical IRS term that applies to a life insurance policy. So when you own a whole life insurance policy, you have as a component of that life insurance policy, you have a death benefit, uh, and you also have what's called the inside buildup of cash values. This these cash values in the account in the in the life insurance policy. Equate to a portion of the reserves that the insurance company has set aside to pay your benefit when you die now, in times past, one of the great benefits of life insurance is there's no cap on who can buy insurance based upon income. Anybody who wants to buy life insurance can you know if you make ten million dollars a year, you can buy in and you can uh, you can buy as much as you want. You can put a million dollars a year into the insurance contract. In addition to that, you have the benefit of the fact that these cash values inside the policy build up without being taxed year by year. So in cash values inside the policy, don't, you don't pay income tax as those values grow. You don't pay capital gains tax and you don't pay ordinary income tax. So this is really valuable, uh, especially because some of the contracts can grow uh, pr- at a pretty decent rate. Uh, generally, life insurance is very stable, uh, but they can grow at a pretty decent rate. Now, when you put these two things together, you have an opportunity for people who are wealthy uh, to say, hey, I've got a, a, a something of a tax shelter here and I can buy a lot of it. Uh, and so you have the possibility that wealthy people will take advantage of this tax shelter. And that's what traditionally has happened in the life insurance marketplace. Lots of people would put lots of money into these life insurance contracts. So, um, I forget when it was. Was it during the '80s that 's what my guess would be, but i 'm not very confident in that uh, in that date. But a few decades ago, the IRS changed the rules and they created something called a modified endowment contract and they said that if you uh, if you were in a situation where you uh, uh, Where you put too much money into this contract, you're obviously just using it as a tax shelter. It's not actually a life insurance policy. And the whole point of the tax code was that they wanted it to be for a life insurance policy, not as a tax shelter. So they have a rule. And the rule is that you can't put more money into the premium than is required to buy a certain type of policy in under seven years. So you have to fund the policy for at least seven years. So the way this gets applied in the world of life insurance is if you buy a life insurance contract – wherein the premiums are paid off in fewer than seven years. So examples here would be if you buy a um, single premium life insurance policy, you give the insurance company $100,000 and they say, hey, here's a a $400,000 policy, that would become a modified endowment contract. If you pay the policy in anything less than seven years, so you pay it for premiums for five years and then you quit paying, uh, that would be a modified endowment contract. And If you put yourself in a situation where um, uh, you put too much money into it uh, and and you pay more premiums than what would be required to pay the policy off in seven years, under that situation, you turn the policy into a modified endowment contract. And the problem with a modified endowment contract is it loses the ability to get the money out without paying taxes. Let me explain that. You don't lose any tax benefits on the death benefit. All life insurance policies are always received by the beneficiary without paying any income taxes of any kind. That's the the same no matter what. All life insurance policies are always received – proceeds are always received by the beneficiary without any income taxes – but the owner of a contract has the ability to take money out of the contract as a loan, an advance of cash values. And when the owner of the contract takes money out of the policy as a loan, an advance of cash values, they can take that money out under what's technically considered to be an advance of death benefit. To uh, They can take that money out and they can receive it without paying income taxes in the current year. So what a modified endowment contract does is it cancels that benefit, and it cancels also the benefit of what's called um, FIFO, first in first out, uh, which is another benefit of a life insurance contract. Uh, you can put in premiums into a life insurance policy. And let's say you've contributed $50,000 of premiums and then you now have $100,000 of cash value in the contract and let's say your death benefit is $250,000. Well, under the terms of the tax code, you can always take out the premiums that you've put in and you don't incur any tax. So you could take out $50,000. It's not a loan. It's just a distribution and that comes to you uh, tax-free under the first-in, first-out rules. Well, when the policy becomes a modified endowment contract, that goes away. So all of that to say, that's what a modified endowment contract is, and it's not necessarily a problem. It just might be a problem in application. Um, it's not a problem if you're buying a policy for death benefit. It might not be a problem um, depending on the application of the policy. It is a problem if you're trying to buy the, the life insurance policy for the death benefit, but you're also hoping to get the benefit of the tax, uh, the, the, the tax favored distribution of cash values. So Frank, that's the technical answer. Hopefully I didn't make you go to sleep. Uh, tell me more about the actual situation and why you're considering purchasing such a contract intentionally.
3: Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm not. I'm wondering why he proposed it. I'm going to meet with him again and <laughs> try to find out. But I first wanted to know what it was.
1: Are you I mean, sure that he proposed a modified endowment contract as uh, a good oh, solution yeah, he, for you?
3: Yeah, he emailed me the, uh, the, uh, the 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 form and the illustration and all. The whole bit um, so hold,
1: hold on okay. one second though because sometimes did, did he say in the contract did he say that it's a modified endowment contract or was that just written on the illustration
3: oh no it's written i mean it's the it's you know i open it up and it says modified endowment contract what is it and why should i purchase one and then it's followed by an illustration
1: i see um, okay of this um
3: so um so what you're telling me is it sounds like it is Essentially, a whole life policy, but without some of the the tax benefits that um, such a policy would ordinarily qualify for if it was done in a certain way. No, um,
1: no, I, I don't think no. that's what's happening here. Let me explain. When you are, if he's, if this life insurance agent is proposing to you the purchase of a whole life insurance policy, they are probably proposing it to you. Um, at, um, for the death benefit, but also as a place for you to accumulate some cash within the cash within the cash values. So, under that type of uh, when they're when you're proposing that and you're designing a life insurance contract, one of the key things that the agent is trying to do is they're trying to make that policy accumulate cash very efficiently. One of the problems with life insurance policies for the purpose of cash accumulation is that you have to deal with. Um, large costs of insurance. After all, there's a death benefit, and that's the cost of insurance. That's a feature that a straight-up investment doesn't have. Uh, When you go and you buy a mutual fund, you don't have to also pay for the proceeds of a life insurance policy out of it. But in a whole life insurance policy, you do. So in order to increase the cash values, what is common in the life insurance business is to add what are called additional premiums to the contract. So, if you were to look at that life insurance illustration from the insurance company, you would find on there most likely, uh, let's say that the about how much of annual premiums uh, is the proposal for?
3: This is let's see, it's a base amount eight hundred. It's insurance one million annual premium outlay forty thousand
1: yeah that's what it is okay so he's recommending to you he's he's proposing or the illustration is for a forty thousand dollar annual premium now on that contract yeah. when you look at that uh, if you look down somewhere on it it'll tell you what the base amount of the insurance is depending on your age let's just say this base amount of insurance the cost of that is fifteen or twenty thousand uh, dollars and let's just say yeah, 20- it,
3: it's eight hundred thousand it's up in the upper right hand corner so the base amount eight hundred thousand additional protection two hundred
1: thousand. Right. Uh, But what's the premium? It'll be down at the bottom of the page usually. Uh, annual premium? Yes, down at the bottom. So let me just talk you through it, because I don't want to get on the show here. I don't want to publicly get into too much of of an illustration, but I'll just tell you what's on a page like that. Down at the bottom, underneath the rows of numbers, you'll see at the bottom where it'll show you somewhere, it'll show you the base premium. And so the base, and it might be at the top or it might be at the bottom, but it'll show you the base premium. And the base premium is probably in the range of Uh, uh, $20,000. For some amount might be whole life insurance, some amount might be a term insurance um, component of that and if you add all that together, let's just say, for sake of illustration here, that it's twenty thousand dollars per year. But what the agent? Okay,
3: maybe, maybe this maybe this will help. It says the contract premium is forty thousand, including sixteen eight sixty four additional premium.
1: Exactly. So that's exactly what it is. So under under your um, situation, the contract annual contract premium is forty thousand dollars and sixteen thousand. I'm just going to use round numbers for the sake of audio. Sixteen thousand of that is additional premium. Now. Um, under whole life insurance, which is different than universal life insurance, those are optional dollars. Those are That's, not, that's money that is optional. It doesn't have to go into the contract. The reason it's there is because that money goes directly to the cash values of the contract and it bypasses the cost of insurance. And so the agent is putting that on there in order to help the cash value in the policy grow more quickly in the early years and also to grow more quickly, hopefully, over the long term. And so the base premium of the contract is $24,000 per year. That's the actual uh, uh, cost of the insurance. That's the minimum that you can pay for that size of insurance policy at your age. But um, they have in there an extra $16,000 of additional premiums. And so that additional premiums, it bypasses agent commissions, it bypasses cost of insurance, and it goes right to the cash values. The problem is this. You can't do that forever. So on your policy illustration, it will show you a year that it becomes a modified endowment contract. So it'll say somewhere, this policy will become a modified endowment contract in year, probably something like year 15, year 20. Do you see a number or a statement like that anywhere in the illustration?
3: Let's see here. Would it be in the, in the rows of, of years? It'd probably or be or
1: at summer? the top. Depends okay. on the company. Yeah,
3: modified endowment as of policy year 17.
1: Okay. Right. So now what they're saying is that this contract becomes a modified endowment contract at year 17. But uh, anytime before that, it's not a modified endowment contract. And what the agent is going to propose to you is they're going to propose to you that you stop paying the premiums before year 17, or that you at least remove those additional premiums before year 17. Because the computer is calculating that the computer is calculating that at that point in time um, you 're going to uh, you 're going to uh, reach that mech limit that line in the contract at which point if you go beyond that you 're in a situation where uh, you 've put too much money into it, so what they will do is they 'll give you they sent you an illustration that shows you paying premiums for all of the years. but during your consultation or during the the actual next stage of the sales process they 're going to give you an illustration that shows you stopping payments probably at year fifteen or year seventeen or reducing at least the additional premiums and they 're going to show you how that contract does it. The reason in the attachment it says this is what a modified endowment contract is is because in order to cover themselves, the insurance company. Puts in the quoting software, it forces that disclosure page to be in there anytime a proposal is run uh, under uh, anytime a proposal is run uh, uh, by the by the computer system. So that's why it's in there on that uh, on that that page. Uh, Now, probably the next question you're saying is this a good thing or is this a bad thing? How old are you now, Frank? Fifty. How old am I? Uh, 52 Okay, so they're going to be proposing this That it ends at 65 or 67 That's why they've done it Is so that when you stop working That you can schedule the life insurance premiums To stop being paid And they're trying to build a policy that is big And that is efficient for um, For your goals Or for whatever you express to them Or whatever they are identifying As saying, hey, we think Frank is going to like this There's nothing wrong with that um, All of my Let me just think for a moment all of my whole life insurance policies that I own uh, and uh, are uh, built in order for. The premiums to be done. This is called in the insurance lingo. This is called quick pay, uh, where the goal is to quick pay the policy. So I want them to. Be, I want to put the money in pretty quickly up front, and then I want to be able to stop at a certain point in time. And depending on your age, this may or may not be a good thing. Uh, but for you, I'm sure this rep is is thinking about. Hey, when when Frank retires, I want to tell him that he doesn't need to uh, keep putting money into it. Make okay. sense? Okay.
3: Oh. Yeah, no, that, that that does make sense, and uh, I see, yeah, he they, 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 they sent me multiple PDFs, and one of them does have a cutoff, uh-huh. um, the, the next one I'm looking at, um, the first one uh, did not. Um, Okay. No, I, I really, I literally, you know, opened this up and I said,
1: "Why
2: do I ask somebody who doesn't know
3: what
1: to do? Well, that's what I'm here. It's interesting. Life insurance is the worst. Like in some ways, it's the best sales process. In other ways, it's the worst sales process. Um, and it's the worst because there's so much technical information, and um, the 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 a life insurance agent has to. Has to simplify it enough to really make sense, but then they also have to be thorough enough to cover the legal and the technical requirements for disclosure. And it's a real hassle because those illustrations that life insurance agents send out are the worst. And um, what you got in terms of an emailed, um, in terms of an emailed thing, uh, when I was an agent, I used to hate sending those out because it's charts and charts and columns of numbers. And the problem is, it's important. It's important disclosures for the, for the prospective client because they need to know how things are going to work. That's the, that's the data that they need for analysis, but nobody ever under, nobody understands um, how that stuff works. So um, hopefully you feel a little bit better equipped to understand what a modified endowment contract is and, and uh, <laughs> you can have a more productive conversation. Uh, anything yeah. else before I go on to the next caller? No,
3: no. Go, go ahead. Go
1: to the next one. Awesome. Let's see here. I've got an 847 number from Illinois. 847 number from Illinois. Go ahead, please, and introduce yourself and let me know how I can serve you, please.
0: Hi, Josh. Uh, it's David from St. Louis. I had to hang up earlier.
1: No problem, David. Go ahead and let's know what your question is.
0: All right. So I sit on a board at my church that manages trusts and a very nice member when they passed away, left us $90,000 in cash and $320,000 in what I've been told, Before our first meeting is everything, mutual funds, stocks, funds, everything. So I'm not really sure how moving money around works for churches, and I know they're looking for this to be a long-term thing where they can kind of draw down 5% every year. That's their goal on paper right now. Uh, If Joshua Sheets joined my church, what would he do?
1: (laughs) Uh, So there's two answers to that. There's the philosophical answer of what would be an appropriate way for a church to handle money, which is kind of an interesting theological and philosophical question. Then there's the practical um, financial planning question, uh, which is probably in some ways more straightforward. Let's try to tackle the the technical one first, and then you can see if you want to talk about – let's go back to philosophical do you know what form the money is? So you received an inherit you received a bequest. Um, the member died, and they left the money to the church. Was the money left in the context of a trust, or was the money just simply left and a beneficiary arrangement on these different accounts?
0: I believe it is a trust. I know we're going to access it through Charles Schwab, and then we're free to move the money around however we want. Again, we haven't met yet for the first time, so. That's
1: all I know at this point okay, so without your having more information, I can't give you much useful information so let in terms of what's actually going to happen so let me give you the 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 questions that you need to ask uh, this person leaving the money as a with this person leaving the money as a trust doesn't tell us anything. There could be various types of trusts. For example, this could be a trust that they've established for the benefit of the trust, and it's a trust that they have have an independent trustee who's going to handle. And what they've decided is that the trustee is going to distribute 5% of the assets to the church uh, each year on an ongoing basis until the money is used up. And if that is how it's arranged, then you as a church, you have no decisions to make in the matter. There's nothing that you need to do. You can't make any investment decisions. There's not anything uh, There's not anything that you guys are, are going to be responsible for. If that's the actual situation, then uh, then you just simply cash the checks and put them into the general operating fund and move on with your life. It also could have been left with an actual trust that was set up for you to – uh, uh, for you to um, – let just think for a moment. It could be set up as a trust where you take over as as a participant in the trust in some way. Maybe you're a trustee. Well, if you take over as a trustee and you're a participant in the trust, then, of course, you would have to make those decisions. But you don't have any information to know that today is going to be relevant to your uh, to your decision. Um, I do know
0: that uh, we will be able to move the money around because there's one guy uh, on the board who said – well, the stock market's at an all-time high. A bunch of it in stocks. So the moment we assume control of it, you know, sell everything and set it down somewhere.
1: Okay. So, yeah. So it could just be, could just be left to you. Well, in that situation, then um, basically the technical answer doesn't matter. Um, it goes down to ph- the philosophy: what is the best use of it? And here you got to handle the investments of it. Um, you know, is, it, is is this particular member right? Uh, is the stock market at an all time high? And then you've got to answer the philosophical question of what's the best way to use money? Uh, is it a good idea for a church to uh, for a church to um, to you know, keep large sums of investment money aside or is it good that that money be spent quickly? So let's skip the, the, the market answer because that answer will, will be highly dependent upon the advice that you get, the philosophy that you have. What do you think should be done with the money?
0: Well, I do know we've been, uh, giving has been sort of down for the last few years. So there was a the thought that this would almost, plug in kind of the budget gap if we were drawing it down a little bit every year. So then in that sense, I understand and agree with, well, if if we can hold this sum of money and use this to kind of fill in some of the gaps, you know, for maintenance around the church and for programs, and things like that, that's not a terrible use of it for the life of the church. I agree with you overall in the greater scheme of things, yeah, would it be better to send a hundred missionaries somewhere or something like that. But for the day-to-day life of the church, I, I can kind of see where the majority of people say, yeah, we'd like to draw down over the period of years a certain amount of money to help plug in a, a,
1: a budget gap. Are some people lobbying for the money to be kept as a fund, uh, that can, an endowment fund, that can be drawn down more slowly?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that is the initial thought uh, before we go into the meeting, that it would be yeah 5% drawn down every year to kind of help with the church budgeting.
1: And what benefit are they trying to get out of that?
0: Uh... I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. What benefit so are they?
1: So, why, why are they wanting to do that? Why do they think it's a good idea philosophically for a church to have a sum of money that they're taking an investment return off of?
0: Ah, I suspect the trustees are looking at We've had a few years of red ink, and they're thinking that this is, you know, li- literally, you know, a manna from heaven or a gift from God, and that this would kind of help uh, sustain the church while you know, we look at other priorities or budget problems or we see, you know, maybe it was giving to sound for a few years and then it picks back up and then we can do, this doesn't close all the doors. Now we have options to disperse the money onto larger projects, scholarships or things like that.
1: Well, um, so that 's a philosophical question that you 've got to answer from scripture and in discussion it 's not a technical financial planning question um, i 'll tell you my opinion um, just in case it sparks some um, it sparks some uh, discussion if you put me in that sh- in that boardroom, uh, I would be lobbying against keeping any kind of endowment fund uh, i don't think it 's a good idea for uh, Uh, especially a church institution, but even most institutions to try to maintain the idea of keeping large amounts of money on an ongoing basis. And I'll tell you why. Especially with churches, and this is something that people who are involved in churches, uh, this is, assuming this is a Christian church, one of the basic uh, understandings of a Christian church is that the Christian God is a God who is living and actively involved in the world. And so that means that he's living and actively involved in money. And you want to make sure that all of your your actions and that your decisions actually reflect that. So um, I wouldn't be seeking to try to set up an institution that can function. Function without the active involvement of the of of the people, um, and in a church environment, the church is not here for its own self enrichment. The church is not here to say, "Look how great we are! Look at how big fancy bu- buildings! Look how wonderful we are!" The church is a living There's organism. A it's a body. A of, um, it's a living organism. It's a body of people who are involved. And if you if you bring that together and you just say, "We've got an an external sum of money," you miss that. Uh, and churches are going to grow, they're going to decline, and God's not scared to let a church die. Uh, and so you don't want to try to prop something up. I think what should be done with the money is you should look and say, what are the biggest, most pressing needs that we see right now that we can use this money to contribute to? That doesn't mean that you turn around and say, this week and this month, we, we're we going to try to get rid of it as quickly as we can and buy a bunch of useless stuff. Um, that's not the point. But but the the church should have here are the priorities here are the opportunities for it uh and and the goal should be how can we how can we steward the money over the short term and and get rid of it into the the most into the biggest return and if if a church doesn't have a better return for their money than the stock market I've lost all confidence and faith in that church. Um, I mean, the, the number of options that are available to multiply the money is so much bigger under the stewardship of a local church. I mean, it's incomprehensible to me that... That we wouldn't have a list of those things uh, that we're focusing on. Why would we be considering the stock market? We should have so many more opportunities that are there to make exponential returns. And I'm talking about financial, but even just in terms of impact, um, 140 no, sorry, three hundred and four hundred and twenty thousand dollars is a substantial sum of money, but uh, that can make a dramatic difference in some local projects. But when you say twenty one thousand dollars per year is a is a basically inconsequential amount of money that's not really going to make a big difference on an ongoing basis so i wouldn't i I personally wouldn't say you know obviously we don't want to be good stewards of it not waste the money but the goal should be over the coming years as in fewer than five we're going to invest this money and get rid of it back out into something that's going to be a much better return I think it's a problem it's a real in terms of Like Charitable giving, if I had given that money, I would actually stipulate that the money needs to be gone within a certain amount of time. Maybe it's a decade. Maybe it's five years. But institutions, especially institutions that are arranged uh, under a religious uh, cause, under a religious banner or under some sort of charitable philosophical banner, institutions run the risk of being hijacked by – people down the road. Uh, And you can see this in every major institution I've ever studied, every large charitable organization, every large university. The universities and the institutions change over time. And the original founders to the Harvard endowment um, might or might not be very happy with what's going on at Harvard today. Uh, And so I think it's important, me, when I'm giving money, I want to make sure the money is gone Um, in a relatively short period of time, because I don't want an institution to be created, especially a church. I don't want a church that can continue functioning without God. And that can happen when you pile up big coffers full of money. Um, God left years ago, but yet the people keep going because there's money. Uh, And I think the same thing applies to other charitable institutions. So that's a pretty strong, and I don't know how usual or unusual philosophical opinion that is, Uh, but I think that plans should be relatively short-term rather than longer-term. What say you?
0: Uh, that was part of the reason why I called I love it uh, when you weave uh, Scripture and theology into uh, your talks, because I think that's very refreshing and something that's generally lacking. That's why I support the show. Um, I think we. it would definitely be something that, yeah, in the next couple of weeks, I'll look into... Yeah, projects around uh, the area that certainly, uh, this is North St. Louis County. We might have, may or may not have been in the news recently in years. That uh, certainly uh, we could do something better and uh, I dare say grander with the money than yeah, just kind of drawing it down like a church's IRA, kind of symbolically. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that very much, and I think uh, yeah, maybe that's uh, God's way of telling us, hey, a, a value <laughs> so high, why, why are you going to sit here and mess around with it? all the cash out, and let's do
1: something with it. I think your most powerful way to compare this is going to be what, what impact does $420,000 of cash make versus what impact does $21,000 a year make? Um, $21,000 a year. How many people are in this church?
0: Oh, uh, it's a good medium-sized church, 200, 250, somewhere around.
1: Okay, so with this size of, of, of church, I mean, $21,000... Can be frittered away in health insurance, and, and you know, painting the buildings and, and and stuff like that. This this is not going to make an impact. And I think if the original member who left the money behind, if I were the member, I would have. Stip- or If I were advising the member, I would have stipulated that they that they specifically think through an, an actual project or an impact. Um, twenty one thousand dollars will quickly get lost in administration and that 's one of the major problems that that churches face i mean even earlier you mentioned it in almost a kind of a, a reactionary defensive way of that well we need these maintenance things done uh, we need to buy paint etc but this happens all the time is that churches get together and they say well we got to keep ourselves going and they're concerned for their own self preservation and they're not concerned for their impact and so the, the, the yes maybe the paint, buildings do need to be painted and maybe the money should be used some of it should be used for that I'm not the one to say um, you guys have to, to, to decide that uh, together but in terms of impact $420,000 is enough to Uh, maybe launch a a project, launch uh, a ministry organization, support somebody who needs support. $420,000 is enough to make a major contribution to something specific. Whereas $21,000 a year can quickly get swallowed up in a bloated budget. So I would approach it on that perspective. And if I were the donor, I would have stipulated that uh, just in terms of impact. So you got to take that and and see what you actually think about it. But um, since you called my show, that's my opinion. (laughs) Great,
0: great. That's what I was looking for. Josh, I I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. (laughs) Love the show.
1: For sure, man. (laughs) <laughs> Wasn't expecting to talk about my philosophy on, on churches and charitable giving, but I guess that's what you get when you do a show like this. Thank you all so much for listening. And for those of you who have called in, uh, it's certainly a challenging uh, a challenging um, situation for me, but we had a bunch of several new callers who joined in from the Radical Personal Families Facebook group. If you'd like to get on a call like this next week, um, jump on as a patron of the show. These calls, uh, at the moment, I've reserved them exclusively for patrons. Just decided uh, as a special as uh, a special thing to go ahead and um uh, I just decided to include the Radical Personal Finance Facebook group today, so that was where a couple of the callers were. And for those of you who've been watching live, uh, watching the live stream, thank you. You know, we're starting to get to the size uh, in terms of in the Facebook group. We have what 750, 800 members now. We're starting to get to the size where I can do uh, more interesting media things uh, for you. Uh, and now that I am fixing my camera setup, I'll be doing more on the Radical Personal Finance Facebook page. So if you haven't found those, come on by Facebook, search Radical Personal Finance, like the page, and join the group. Free to do that. Lots of uh, other great people there. If you'd like to support the show, uh, if you appreciate content like this and like to keep it uh, with minimal outside interference, minimal commercials, etc., please consider becoming a patron of the show, RadicalPersonalFinance.com. You can support the show directly, and that money goes directly from you into my pocket, which is uh, very helpful and helps me do things like buy a camera and buy a light so that my face on the video screen Uh, looks okay. (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening and I'll be back with you soon.